foodies. Welcome to another episode of Food Network Obsessed. This is the podcast where we dish on all things Food Network. And I am your host, Jamie Sire, fresh off a 10-day trip to the Seattle area, capped off by a little camping trip to uh, Fort Warden, if you know the area. I don't know about you guys, but a campfire cooked hot dog is above all other hot dogs, in my opinion. I like mine with extra char, lots of mustard, and I mean, that's pretty much it. Pretty simple. That is not the only thing that I ate. There was a lot of other junk food involved, as you would expect from any sort of camping trip. A lot of licorice, a lot of pizza rolls, a lot of cheese, a lot of things that hurt my belly. Um, So I'm looking forward to maybe some uh, vegetables and and seafood this week. But on this week's episode of The Pod, we are talking to a Food Network powerhouse, and I am talking about Antonia LaFaso. I was so excited to have Antonia on The Pod because I don't know about you guys, I was locked into Tournament of Champions, and that tie between her and Jet Tila was absolutely nuts. So we talk all about that, plus we dive a little bit deeper into her background and her earliest memories around food and cooking. Of course, she is a West Coast-based chef and restaurateur. You've watched her judge on Guy's Grocery Games, and recently, of course, she returned to the second season of Tournament of Champions. So let's welcome her, Antonia LaFaso. Antonia, welcome to the pod. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, It's always so good to be here. Thank you so much. Yes. Uh, So before we talk about you, your restaurants, Food Network, um, before we get into all of that, I have to ask one burning question on my end. Um, So as a lifelong Bachelor franchise (laughs) fan... Uh, I have to say that Antonia LaFasa making an appearance on The Bachelorette was not on my 2020 bingo card, but um, it was a crossover that I thoroughly enjoyed. So how did that uh, that whole thing come about? Jamie, I love that. you. I, there's been so many people that have asked me this question and it's so funny. So when I did it, I was like, no one's even going to notice. That was that was legitimately what I thought. But Ben Smith and I are actually good friends. Like ever since he moved here, he lives in my neighborhood. And I, I've seen the whole process of him going through this of, you know, producers kind of DMing him, trying to, you know, get get him onto the show. And he was on the fence about doing it. I was like, you need to do it. So, you know, I, I saw the whole process, watched the whole process and then of course it was 2020 and his parents when it came down to you know home hometowns I for the record never watched the show <laughs> had never seen an episode of the show and then just happened to be on the show so when hometowns came about the and for those who don't know it's when all the family members for like the last four finalists come and meet the you know potential bachelorette to be married couple whatever it is and um the producers called me and they're just like his parents can't come and ben thinks of you as as a mother and i was like hold on a second i'm 44 years old let's not tell the world that i'm even old enough to be your mother like i'm a friend mentor you train me i truly did not even think anyone would even notice and it was really it was actually pretty funny yeah i know it was great i was i was very shocked um and it's like my one guilty pleasure if you're gonna call it that TV show um, that I've you know watched since yeah. since college, and so I saw you pop up on there, and I was like, that is so cool. Uh, that is well. The crazy part was I was watching it on the edge of my seat. I was like, I've never seen this show before, but now my friend is on it, so now I'm going to watch it. And I'm like, I obviously know what happens because I was there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? But I was still like hanging on every single week, like as if I didn't know what was you know what happened. But it was it's it's it was a definite first, and it was perfect for 2020. And how did I end up on the show? Because I live in Los Angeles and I live in Venice, and you. 
you know, it doesn't get more like L.A. than that. Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> well, speaking of which, yes, you are living in Venice in sunny California, which is yes. kind of a long way from Long Island where you grew up. Uh, what what made you decide to, to move across the country and settle down on the West Coast? Um, I had no choice. I was 11 and my parents took me with them. Okay. (laughs) That's probably a pretty good reason. (laughs) They were like, we're not going to leave an 11 year old in Long Island by herself. I was born and raised in Long Island, but my parents, we all moved out here when I was 11 and my brother was 10. And, you know, they just, they wanted to get out of New York. My, My dad hates New York, even though he is a... I mean, born and raised, Little Italy, then moved out to Long Island. My mom is the same thing. So they're very anti the East Coast because they got a little taste of like some SoCal weather and that was it. <laughs> uh, that's fair enough. I went the opposite. I, I, I was in California for 10 years and, and ended up on the East Coast somehow. So we've we've switched places. Yeah, I mean, I love I love the East Coast. I do. But there's times and, you know, I'll land in New York and it feels like home and I get to put on a sweater because you don't wear sweaters in L.A. And like it just... Just, uh, I get off the plane and then two days of that, if there's like rain or snow, I'm like, get me back to, you know, my flip flops all day long. Yeah, absolutely. I, I tell people all the time that Southern California is uh, it's just not it's not real life as, as as far as the weather goes. Anyways, yeah. You mentioned growing up in, in Long Island with, you know, an Italian family, but also a Jewish family. It seemed like you guys really loved to cook. What what were some of your earliest memories uh, just being in the kitchen or, or that food from childhood? Yeah, I mean, listen, all cultures have have like this love and obsession with food no matter where you are but especially New York you know Jewish and Italian I always make this joke that the cable guy would come over and my mom asked if I made him a sandwich because that's (laughs) just how ingrained cooking for everyone was and what we did and you know I would say like my largest memory at that time was more sort of the understanding of how big food is because growing up in Long Island I was in a very small community of mostly Italian families and that's really all we ate. That's, I mean, those are my first memories of food. It was just like very uh, Italian-American style dishes all the time. And when we moved to Los Angeles, California, my mind was blown because I went to an El Torito my parents took me to an El Torito and my dad said, there's this great dish that comes out of the kitchen and it's still cooking on. And he was talking about fajitas. And of course he called them like fajitas or like some awful, like, you know, <laughs> Ital- like with his accent, he was just didn't know what it was. And um, we went to our first Mexican restaurant. I mean, obviously now living in Los Angeles and having traveled all over the world and spent so much time in Mexico, I understand that that is a very like, you know, specific style of Mexican food, but it was mind blowing. I had never never seen Mexican food before. And so that that memory of that sort of transition from living in Long Island and then coming to Southern California and seeing the vast variety of food. I mean, we had Chinese food and, you know, or what the version of Chinese food was in Long Island, but I did not have an understanding of how what other food cultures look like until I moved to California and visited El Torito in the San Fernando Valley. A lot of chefs like to say like their first love of food and their first exploration of food was, you know, a baguette by the Seine River in France. And mine was like this, you know, San Fernando Valley and El Torito and like a corn pudding. (laughs) (laughs) I love that, though, because I I mean, I I grew up in Montana. And so I remember getting to San Diego, um, you know, in my 20s and, and really realizing that I had not properly had 
had like actual Mexican food previously. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I miss it so much. I miss I, I miss uh, I mean, you know, there, there obviously is uh, some in New York, but not not to the uh, abundance or, or degree that you find in Southern California. Uh, what about some of those, you know, Italian-American recipes from your childhood? What what stands out as something that, you know, if you have that that dish or that flavor or that ingredient that just like immediately transports you back to your childhood? You know, mine specifically is just a, a really simple tomato sauce. I mean, obviously in, in Long Island, we call it, a, you know, a nice marinara <laughs> and, and I still smell it. So my mom was really big on cooking early in the morning. And when I say early in the morning, like three, four, five o'clock in the morning. Wow. So I would wake up to, yeah, she had awful insomnia and so she would cook. And so I would wake up to the smell of simmering garlic and I knew that she was getting ready to make tomato sauce and I could actually smell the garlic in olive oil and still to this day, I'm like, my mouth is watering actually thinking about it. Still to this day, it's like I smell a little bit of garlic in some oil and it is, it fully transports me like back to my childhood. And for the record, my childhood at many different levels, my childhood as like a, you know, a really nice little six-year-old and then as a teenager coming home, like you know, hung over and being like, what the, what is that smell at five o'clock in the morning? And I'm like, Oh, it's my mom's tomato sauce. So it, it went through my entire childhood, but yeah, the smell of tomato sauce and the smell of garlic and olive oil, there's something about that smell. And I always make this joke about how I want to like do a essential oils for, for, for the cooking world where like people just walk around smelling like Parmesan cheese or garlic and olive oil or, you know, maybe not something that aggressive, but I think it smells good. I mean, listen, if, if you come up with that, I, that is an essential oil that I, I would actually consider buying. So, yeah, I would need to get some more information from like men. I'm, <laughs> I'm not dating right now. So I just feel like if I smelled like garlic, simmering garlic and olive oil, like, is that more appealing to you or less appealing is to you? So sexy? I want to take the, <laughs> I want to take that. I want to take that poll first before I dive into this business. All right. We need to do some market research because yeah. Like totally go. I need some analytics on the sense of women um, in the food world before I really, you know, spend some money there. All right. Well, maybe we could get you on The Bachelor. I mean, if you knew somebody, then, um, yeah. then perhaps uh, we could we could swing that. Um, no. That is my dream. I feel like I me being on maybe The Bachelorette was more like hope for women over the age of 40, you know, that wearing sweatshirts in the morning versus their hair being done all the time. You know, like we could be on the bachelorette too. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's for all ages, right? I mean, I've, yeah, I'm, I'm 40 and I still watch it. So I feel like, I feel like yeah. it's for everybody. Well, I'm 45 this year. So technically I would be the oldest bachelorette ever. I, I'm here for it. I am hundred percent here for it. And <laughs> I think your, your daughter would be a very uh, integral part of, of your, your season of bachelorette because you do have a 21 year old daughter, Zaya. I do. Um, it seems like you guys are really, really close. Do you guys get to cook together often? We do. And actually she didn't, Zaya's into music. She loves music. Like you wouldn't believe she has an ear for it. She listens to all styles of music. She wants to produce music. So she's into food in the way that like a food writer's into a food or a blog. You know, she is, if you, I can take her anywhere in the world. And this girl, I am so proud of like her palate and the way she eats and the way she presents herself in a restaurant. And she has a true love and understanding of it. Does she want to cook? Absolutely not. When she went <laughs> to college, uh, I was worried because I'm like, God, I'm sending you out in the world with very little cooking abilities. And then pandemic hit, she was home with me and she actually started cooking a lot more. And then we just recently did a guy's grocery games delivery ah. where she competed with me. 
she was petrified. Really? You know, I was like, I, well, I never look at it because her, her and I are so close and we are, you know, we're, all, you know, I had her when I was 23 years old. I was a baby. And so she, like, we are just so, you know, we're in sync with each other so well. And she loves being around me and wants to spend time with me. And she's awesome. I love spending time with her. But she was petrified to uh, compete with me because she is like, you know, you're kind of a psycho when you compete and I don't want to ruin anything for you. But she did so well. I was wildly impressed and it gave her so much confidence, you know, and Guy was so sweet to her and it really like everyone, like the judges, everyone was so sweet to her and honestly just giving her such great feedback because she really did such a great job. So I don't think she wants to do anything professionally. (laughs) I I mean, I know for sure she doesn't want to do anything professionally, but she loves eating out with me. And if it came down to competing again with me, I would have her on my team any day. She does such a good job. I love that. I love that. Do you have any (laughs) advice out there for, you know, uh, moms trying to balance it all? I feel like you have done a good job of that, you know, being a mom, being a restaurateur, being on TV and kind of making all those things work uh, in conjunction with each other? That's always such a loaded question. And and thank you for saying that it looks like I've done a great job. I've tried really hard. It's, you know, that's been the hardest thing I think with Zay and I is, you know, her dad died when she was young. He was like 11 when she passed away. And that was right when I was opening one of my first restaurants. And, you know, some of the most horrendous moments, but at the same time, some of the most like beautiful moments between the two of us, you know, and Zay will tell you this, actually, her and I just did an interview together and I almost started crying. It was this interview for Mother's Day. And she said that I said something to her that sticks with her all the time. And she said, uh, we're in this together. Like I'm on your team, like we're on each other's team, because I feel like the only advice that I would give to parents out there and what kind of got me through and none of it's been perfect. None of this has looked perfect. None of this has been perfect. Like, let me make that super clear is that there's sort of this like unwavering I'm going to succeed at my job for a multitude of reasons to show her, you know, A, as a human being, B, as a female, you can do whatever it is that you want to do, no matter what happens to you, no matter what like life throws at you, you do you, you know, and that doesn't mean that you're selfish. It just means that like your priorities matter because your priorities when they're, when they're successful, then trickle down to everyone else. And so that's really how that worked. And I think she now sees you know, everything that we've done and everything that we've built and sacrifices that were made and mostly time sacrifices on her part and my part, you know, were not easy. That being said, I didn't do it alone. My father was present. My mother was present. Her grandparents on her father's side, like there's been a a slew of people that have, that have helped me raise her. But she, um, you know, the biggest thing I would just tell parents is like, you know, make kids really believe and really, you know, that you guys are on the same team. It's not us against you. It's not the parent and then the child. It's we're on the same team and, you know, we're all going for the same thing. So coming up next, we talk all about Antonia's restaurants in L.A., her experience on this past season of Tournament of Champions. Plus, she reveals the worst bite of food she's ever had while judging on Food Network. When we talk about, you know, this balancing act that you are constantly doing and other moms across the country constantly doing for you, that means owning, you know, restaurants, multiple restaurants in California. All of them are are very unique concepts as well. Uh, It seems like they all have a different vibe. Do you feel like that that is a reflection of how diverse your own cooking style is? Yeah, I mean, my cooking style is super diverse and I 
love that. And I think it's also because, like I said, I grew up in Los Angeles. There is a lot of diversity in Los Angeles and in its cooking. You know, I think that Los Angeles has been a city that hasn't really been recognized on the food map for a really long time. And over the last three or four years, it really has become a mecca. You know, we had Michelin Guide come, you know, two years ago to to look at us and review us. But it's, you know, in California, if you didn't work in San Francisco, you didn't work in restaurants. And so Los Angeles really changed that. And I think my food reflects more this sort of, you know, this melting pot of California cuisine, because I mean, we have the most incredible Korea town. I mean, we've got the most incredible Mexican food. There's so many like Jamaican restaurants. There's so much and it's, and it's close, you know what I mean? Where it's within seven, eight miles of each other. I mean, yeah, in California or Los Angeles, there's traffic. So it may be seven miles away, but it could take you an hour to get there. But yeah, so I just think that my food reflects sort of the diversity I grew up with eating. Is Scopa more of a reflection of me because I am an Italian American? Maybe. I think I have more stories behind it. But, you know, when we opened Dama, I was um, humbled and so excited to sort of share this journey of growing up in Los Angeles and being really connected to Mexican food, um, spending time in Spain, spending time in South America, my business partners from South America, and really understanding that. And for me, when I open those kind, that kind of a restaurant, I immerse myself so much into, and I won't ever do food that I don't somehow feel genuinely connected to because I just don't think it's fair to the food, you know, but again, it has my style to it. So like if you go to black market, black market goes from Mexican food to Italian food to Asian style food all over the place. But I think the common ground is sort of you can see my personality in it. You can see the way I plate. You can see my how I pick ingredients, the way I handle ingredients, the style of service, you know, the attitude of the staff, the culture of the restaurant. Um, I think all of that matters. And so you can be at all three restaurants and feel the same sense, I would say, like of me and like the culture of our restaurants. And then it just happens to be different types of food. But I'm, I'm proud of the fact that there's so much sort of mixture in my restaurants and what they look like, what they feel like. And, you you know, what the cuisine is, because all of it has been stuff that I'm obsessed with. I don't make food in any of the restaurants if I'm not completely and totally obsessed with it. Uh, do you have a favorite restaurant or is that too too hard to Shh, choose? You don't. It's like, it's like just saying, do you have a favorite kid? You just <laughs> don't say those things out loud. You know, it's so funny. Whenever I go into each of the restaurants, like I have moments. So I'll be at Scopa and then all of a sudden I'm like, God, this is my favorite. And then I'll go into Dama and I'll eat something. I'm like, oh my God, no, this is, you know, and I, I have those moments in all three restaurants. I walk into Black Market and Black Market was my first baby with this restaurant group that we built. And I, I got teary eyed in there last year because I was like, God, this restaurant's been open for 10 years. 10 years in a Los Angeles restaurant. Scope is going to celebrate eight years this year. Dama celebrating three years this year. The fact that those numbers are alive in Los Angeles with everything that we've been through, but even before 2020, I mean, that's like, you know, 105 in dog years. <laughs> it totally is. I think like having a restaurant open that long anywhere is very is something that you should be proud of. Um, but you did. Oh, I am. You did mention 2020. And obviously that was a, a hard year for everybody, especially the restaurant industry. And I was so captivated by the documentary that you did with, you know, Guy, Mini, Christian Petroni, Marcus Samuelson, Restaurant Hustle 2020, all on the line. If, in case anybody hasn't seen it, I, I highly recommend. Um, and I, I kind of rewatched some of your parts today just in preparation for this interview and I mean it's it's hard to watch I mean I'm sure for you even more so but it was such a brutal and honest account of just 
what you guys went through right when everything was unfolding we didn't know what was happening so i'm i'm wondering you know now that you have a little distance from it it's been a little over a year later we're starting to see the light a little bit what is your level of optimism just about the future compared to when you were you know self-filming this documentary oh i mean it feels like it feels like a hundred years ago I know it was only a year ago, but it feels like it's that long. You know, I compare it, I think, in the documentary to like a car accident, right? So when you're in that moment of sort of shock and trauma, you're just like survive, survive, survive. And now watching it, it was actually like bringing up those emotions. And, and, I, and I'm like, I can't even believe that we did what we did. You know, when Guy called me and, and then he had Courtney White on the phone, too. And I was like, oh, great. Guy Fieri and like the head of Food Network is, <laughs> you know, on my phone right now. They're like, OK, we're going to send you an Osmo. And I was like, absolutely not. Like, you guys are crazy. Like, this is not happening because I, in my mind, I said this on the phone. I was quiet. Um, <laughs> I was like, I'll send an email later. Because in my mind, I was like, I'm getting, I'm losing all three of my restaurants. I couldn't even fathom picking up a Osmo and recording anything. I was in shock. And so I'm so happy that I did now. I mean, I look at that and I knew going into it, I was like, I'm either all in on this and they're going to see every piece of it or they're going to get something that's not real. And I don't do that. Like I'm, I'm either all in or I don't do it. And so my best friend of, you know, since I was 12 years old is a cinematographer and picked up the Osmo and just started following me around. And, um, what came out of it, I mean, watching my team come together, watching all of the people that, you know, we were able to keep on and work and our business shift and moment to moment and what that looked like. I was like, I was in tears every single day, you know? And so the reaction that I've gotten from people having seen the documentary, you know, especially in different areas that aren't like New York or Chicago are people being like, if you guys are going through it, it, it felt like this, it was connective, you know, all it connected all of us to every single restaurant tour in the, in, in the U S um, of people being like, wow, if they're going through it, if they're struggling, I'm in it too with them. And it, it kind of all felt like that was the biggest part of the restaurant industry right now. It's like, we had never felt more connected because we were all just cut off at the knees together and just doing our best to survive together. And, you know, we were on group chats and emails and WhatsApps and did you hear this? and what's going on. And so the level of community that came together was unreal. And I think I said it in the documentary, I was just like, restaurant people are strong mm -hmm. and we will survive. And, you know, we, we're cut from a different cloth. We just are, you know, we grit harder. We, you know, there's just something about us. And so um, what it looks like now is like, I can't even remember um, because we're just trying to keep, you know, we're just trying to move forward. Mm -hmm. And like the idea of anything moving backwards, I think would just... I would break my heart in a way that I don't know if I can recover at this point. I'm like, it's just been too much. I mean, LA, I'm still, I'm still like the, the lonely one left out. Yeah, yeah. Like we still don't have a lot of stuff open. I mean, it's open more than I am. Marcus is open more than I am. Um, Christian. And so I'm the only one who's still like still stuck, you know, trapped in a box right now. Well, I think it's it's very inspiring to watch it. Like I said, it is hard because it's you know you're transported back to that time, um, and it's it's emotional. One thing that has come from this, I know you started a gourmet meal kit delivery service that was inspired by signature dishes at your restaurants, and I think I, I love hearing that chefs started doing this because I think that that was something I really enjoyed and it was a way to support the restaurant, but also kind of have that experience at home. Like you said, when, when parts of, you know, where you are, are still not open yet. Can you tell us a little bit more about that service? 
Absolutely. So, yeah, I mean, we all restaurateurs were, I mean, I was like, I will sell you my forks and knives <laughs> at this point. And that's that's really where we all were. It's like, you know, not, there, were, there was no rules. And so we built a nationwide food delivery service of like all of our greatest hits at Scopa and Dama and Black Market, where it's like kind of a do it yourself at home that people were sending me like, how can we help? How can we support? What can we do? So not only have these kits gone out to just, you know, people who are ordering online and they can enjoy it, but, you know, companies have been supporting being like, you know, we weren't able to do a holiday party. Can you guys help us? And we were building Zoom dinners. You know, I I did a Zoom dinner for a company for for a Christmas party that was 300 people all across the United States that we packed up 300 boxes, shipped them out. And we did. So these are events that we would normally be doing inside of the restaurant. Um, now, I, you know, I make a joke because I'm always up in my private dining room and I'm like, this used to be a private dining room where 40 people would come up and I would sometimes do a demonstration up here. And now I'm just doing it with a computer screen and my marketing director, Chani, like, you know, fanning me searing chicken so that the smoke alarms don't go off. And so like, <laughs> you know, we've just figured it out essentially. But, you know, the incredible thing about the box deliveries, um, you know, the do it yourself at home kits from Scopa and Black Market and Dama is that when we had the second shutdown in November, we didn't have to lay any back of the house employees off. And that was really heartbreaking. I mean, obviously the first time and you saw in the documentary, I was like beside myself and everyone was looking at me like, do we have a job on Friday? And I was able to say yes. You know what I mean? And so, you know, solely because we did these box deliveries. And, and is this something that you will continue, you know, beyond? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, Pablo may not get old lightning back. So this may just be my, <laughs> you know, we had, we had a small little speakeasy bar inside of Scopa that once held 25 people that I'm sitting in right now um, that curated cocktails, which is now our shipping office. So I don't know, you know, we've got a, a whole little, we have our own little FedEx printout thing and stickers and, you know, there's all those technical terms that I don't know. But yeah, Pablo is not getting his, his space back anytime soon. <laughs> I mean, how much skill does that take? Because you're talking about shipping these things, you know, across the country, making making sure that you really do them justice to what you would get Mm -hmm. if you were in the restaurant having them. Oh, we did. I mean, listen, and that's what I was saying. Like restaurant people are just cut from a different cloth. It's like, yeah, we're not shipping professionals. But, you know, I was just saying like my marketing director, Chani Hitt, and my chef de cuisine, Victor Totores, the amount of research that they did within like less than a month, because we we anticipated stuff happening. We didn't wait until things shut down and then try to figure it out. We were really trying to figure out what to do. And it was going on. Guy did an episode of Diners, Drive-Ins and Dives. And he was like, hey, ship me a box and we're going to I'm going to do the rice balls and the empanadas here. And then he said, you better get ready. People are going to ask you for these. And I was like, like, you know, we didn't even think of that. So he kind of sparked this this idea. And then as soon as that aired, we were inundated with emails and, and of people being like, can I get those empanadas in Detroit? Can I get those rice balls, you know, in Nashville? And so. From that, like I said, my marketing director and my uh, chef de cuisine ran and started, you know, we were shipping. I have family in New York. My business partners have family in New York. So we were shipping packages and seeing what temperature they arrived at to make sure the temperature was right and how they arrived and was everything still intact. And so it was a lot of research and development before we were able to actually build these boxes and negotiating with FedEx and, and doing all these other things. So, yeah, it was not an easy business to build by any stretch of the imagination. Well, I mean, you should feel very good about the uh, the business that you've built that will continue on beyond uh, beyond all this when you guys are hopefully at 100% at some point. But obviously, we have to 
kind of turn the page and talk tournament of champions. I know people are going to want to hear about that because that is another thing that happened during the pandemic, shooting this massive production. You're back after a great run last year. What was your attitude coming back uh, the second time around? Well, I mean, if anyone's watched me in my entirety of my culinary competition career, they know that I take it very seriously. Like, you know, throw up in the shower, only eat donut diet, kind of a, you know, emotional get it ready. It drives me nuts. You have no idea. The culinary competitions at that level. I mean, I get I get crazy just doing like when I compete on Cutthroat Kitchen or even, you know, guys grocery games, you know, this level though. Oh, my God. It's like a pressure cooker. So I get pretty crazy. I mean, a massive moment happened with with your battle with Jetila because for the first I time can't. ever we saw a tie and it was yeah. and when I heard about this like I was like oh well you know they could just take whatever category but it was every single category you guys had the exact same score I mean take us through your mind when you because you were the one that kind of did the quick math in your head and you're like wait a minute yeah <laughs> I'm great at math so I'm watching Guy read out the numbers uh, of Jet Tila and you know it's like 93 and I was like oh okay that's weird and then the same numbers start reading off so I'm calculating I'm like 47 I was like wait a second I was like but those are the same numbers so it took me a second to be like what's the answer because I'm like both of these numbers are the same and so it was really surreal and then of course he's like first time ever and the weird part is you know a little like behind the scenes is like I watched all the producers it took longer to tally the scores this time mm. and so and I was seeing people kind of race around production I was like something's going on like so, you know what I mean because they couldn't believe they were redoing the numbers and then they you know they were talking to the judges like are you sure you wrote these numbers down right like they really wanted to make sure you know this is what you know they really wanted make sure that it was true and accurate so I was like what the hell is going on and when I saw that I was like I gotta do this again <laughs> <laughs> yeah because you had to you had to re you had to do it all over again I mean was that like a part of the contingency or did they come up with that on the spot they came up with it on the spot they never thought in a million years because you have three judges and three categories like there's always going to be a number off somewhere you know what I mean and so for all three judges to score exactly the same way I mean I don't know what the percentage of that is, but like maybe we should go bet in Vegas at this point because <laughs> it the, the chances of it happening are very, very, very slim. And so I was like, you have no idea what it takes to even just the lead up of going onto the show and then the preparation and production on the show and then all the stuff that you have to do before you even get out onto the tournament floor. And so your mind is going through all of this like insane stress, this insane pressure, this like your wheels are just turning. So it's like every time you finish a cook you're like oh my god it's over thank god it's over that's how i feel anyway and so when they were like and we're gonna do that again i was like what what do you mean we gotta do that again <laughs> oh my gosh well i mean is this show as hard as it looks because it seems like it's like kind of the ultimate of all of the competition shows because of the randomizer and because of the blind judging and because of the quality of chefs you're going up against is is that fair to say this is the hardest show i've ever done and I used to say that, I mean, obviously, I, and I did two seasons of Top Chef, let's just say that. And we all know what that looked like. <laughs> yeah. This is the hardest show I've ever done. And then I said, and then when the first time I did a tournament of Chopped, I was like, this is the hardest show I've ever done because it's real. You open a basket and that's it. This is the hardest show I've ever done because there's this wheel, there's this randomizer that just spins and it is 
awful. This is my superpower, right? You give me five words that don't match. And somehow we create a dish with these five words that don't match. <laughs> and so it's, it is the most insane thing. And you, we have no time to think about it. So it's like the wheel spins guy reads off the five things that the wheels spun to the culinary puts in the protein in the refrigerator that spun and the vegetable out. You're talking about 30 seconds and then it's go. And so if you only have 30 minutes on the clock, your mind is like, what am I making? I have no idea what I'm making. And so, but the other part to it, it's so much fun because you're like, oh my God, I'm ripping my hair out. And then all of a sudden, 30 minutes later, 45 minutes, it's over. And you see these dishes that you've made under this insane stress. And you're like, how did I even think about that? So there's this confidence that comes from it, especially when your scores are so high and you know that you put out great dishes round after round and you're just kind of, you're either win or you're, you're beat by, you know, a point or whatever it is to me, like, I'm okay with that because I put out, I put out really good food, like both seasons and I'm proud. And so it's almost this weird sort of confidence builder where I'm like, you know what I'm really good at? <laughs> you can give me five totally weird abstract words and I can make the most beautiful dish you've ever seen in less than 30 minutes. Like who has that skill? No, that's I not mean, many that's people, not many people in the world. It's like, it's like Mad Libs, but like for food. Yeah. Well, we've established that you're, you're very competitive. So will you, would you be back next year if they asked you? Okay, so this is this this is my psychotic brain. Are you ready for this? Yes, I'm ready. I'm like, I will never do this show. I've literally said this every like, I will never do this show ever again. No way. I I'm like, I can't physically put myself through the stress. Right? Can't physically put myself through the stress. Having a conversation with a guy, he's like, well, you know, maybe you'll like, maybe if you want to judge next year. I was like, wait, so you don't think I'm good enough to like compete next year? So this is my psychosis like so no of course I want to compete but I don't want to go through the stress I don't I hate losing you know especially when you lose and you have such high numbers that's like the worst part like how do you lose and you're in the 90s and it's I don't know who knows who knows we'll see we'll, we'll just uh, we'll leave everybody yeah. hanging on that one but if you yeah. were to come back and compete again is there anyone in the Food Network family that you would like to go up against that you have not had a chance to face yet I really want to compete against Manit. I love her so much. And our, you know, our styles are so similar, but so different at the same time. Like we cook from the heart. It's so comforting, you know, but she has such a mastery of spices mm -hmm. that I am, you know, and I've spent a lot of time when she, when her cookbook came out, I cooked through her cookbook. Her and I did a lot of sort of Instagram lives with her cookbook. That part of cooking, I'm not as familiar with, especially that sort of mastery of that, you know, of that, the, the beautiful spices of India that she she has nailed to a degree that I can only like, you know, it's like I would still be like measuring where she just can like throw like the same way I am with, with Italian cuisine or, you know, Latin cuisine. She just like has that. And I, I just want to be around her more and really kind of like pick up um, what she has because I'm using it more of as a learning experience <laughs> that's, that's um, because fair. she's, yeah, She's just so, you know, it's just this mastery of spice that I think is incredible. No, it is. And it's, it was nice to see you guys, too, on the documentary, just like having that that camaraderie, even though it was over Zoom. You know, like we've done so many things yeah. over Zoom this year as, as we are doing right now. But I think she would be a, a formidable opponent for sure. But I, I, yes. I'm guessing you would learn a lot as well. On the other side of the table, you've been a judge on Guy's Grocery Games, as well as Cutthroat Kitchen and Iron Chef, including the season that I was a floor reporter. Um, do you prefer being a judge or a contestant? 
You know, I actually like both. I really, I mean, obviously judging has a lot less pressure, but I really do like competing, you know, it, and it also like keeps you fresh. It keeps you like on your toes. You know, I don't think I'm done competing in general. I, what I really like actually, you ready for this is sort of the mixture of judging and competing that we do on guys uh-huh. grocery games, because I actually learn a lot from competitors. So when I'm judging food, I'm kind of like taking mental notes being like, Oh, I didn't realize canned potatoes did this. And all of a sudden, like I use canned potatoes. And so like there's, all these kind of cooking hacks and there's all of these great ideas from watching other people cook and compete and judging their food. So I've learned so much as a judge, just again, watching people create their food or listen to them talk about food. And then I get to really test you know, how, how I cook under pressure, you know, with, with weird things thrown at me with like holding onto lobster hands or having to like (laughs) play basketball at the same time. That's just, that's just a lot. What's the worst bite of food that you've ever had as a judge? Oh my God. This is like without question, cutthroat kitchen had to do a century egg. I still remember this and this was like 12 (laughs) years ago. The contestant did not use a century egg correctly or didn't understand what it was. And they put the entire egg inside of a chopped salad and I was a young judge at the time, and so I wasn't really paying attention. I was so nervous standing next to Alton Brown, and and the contestant was like, yeah, I used the century egg and chopped it up and put it in the Cobb salad, and I just took a big old handful and put it in my mouth, and I was like, <gasps> you know, and century egg is funky and sour and all the, all words, of the things <laughs> all of the things that you that that people use they great small smidgens of it just to sort of give this like you know fermented funk to a dish not the entire egg and i put about a half an egg in my mouth so oh, did you uh Let's just say it didn't okay. stay down. Okay. Let's just say it didn't we will, stay down. We will yeah. not go into details yeah. on that, but um, <laughs> safe to say that was that's, that was an easy question. Safe to say I can pretty much digest anything, but I could not digest that. <laughs> what about best bite you've ever had uh, judging? Oh, one of the best bites I ever had was actually on Iron Chef America. And it was Alex Guanaschelli. She did a ribeye and it was so simple, but she took the bone and she like charred the bone after it was removed and sliced and the the challenge was blue cheese and so she took the ribeye like the crunchy of all of sort of that beautiful like fat and leftover meat on the outside of that ribeye bone charred it and then rolled it in blue cheese and then rolled it in green onion and all of a sudden I got like a ribeye rib (laughs) It's, it's so simple and that's what I love about her cooking but it was so simple and so good um, I still think about it I still think about have it have you ever tried day. to recreate it I 100% did try to recreate it and I failed miserably, <laughs> miserably and I think I texted her afterwards I'm like super embarrassing but I tried to redo your like rib and I, the blue cheese wouldn't stay on and uh, yeah so if you see it I'm sorry <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure she'll forgive you no she was we, fine we recently also saw you host uh, Save the Leftovers mm-hmm. can you tell us a little bit about that show for anybody who hasn't seen it yeah um, so I love the concept of this show so 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 much in fact I play it at my house all the time like what do you do with like leftover turkey sausage and kale that you braised the night before with Calabria and chili. It's like, look at my frittata. It's this great concept where people are always looking into their refrigerators and they have, you know, a slew of leftovers and how do we recreate them? How do we make them into something new and exciting? And I joke about this all the time, what chef's superpower is, which is we look at refrigerators different. We look at leftovers different. We look at ingredients different. And it's because of years of practicing this ability to put things together that you wouldn't normally put together or repurposing something because we don't waste anything. 
food. Chefs don't waste any food. If you are in any restaurant, our, our sole purpose in life is to use every morsel down to its last bit, not just because of food costs and things like that, but because we are in this business to create food and feed people, not throw things away. So for me, at its core, this show is everything that represents a great chef, which is we use every piece of everything, every piece of vegetable, every piece of uh, protein, like nose to tail cooking. And so it's being able to kind of showcase those exceptional qualities that chefs have. I always make a joke. My mom, you know, when I was a kid, you'd come home from school and you were starving. You'd open up the refrigerator and be like, there's nothing to eat in here. And you're all of a sudden your mom would be like, oh, you want to see that there's nothing to eat in here? And all of a sudden there would be like this feast, you know? And again, because my mom looked at food differently than I did at that time. And so my daughter does it now. Every once in a while, she'll open the fridge and be like, there's nothing to eat in this fridge. I'm like, you're 21. <laughs> Bye. Bye. <laughs> That's my answer now. Bye. Uh, no, I love that. I love that. I love, by the way, I love leftovers as well for all of those reasons, because I, I do hate wasting food. It's like ingrained in my head, but also yeah. I, yeah, I like, it's, it's like a fun challenge. It's like, you know, an episode of chopped every, every time you get to open the fridge and, Absolutely. and try to create something new. Um, I do want to do some rapid fire questions before we let you go. Yes. So, um, just first thing that okay. comes to your head, let me know what you think. First one, sweet or savory? Savory. Savory. Me too. Favorite food city? Oh, favorite food city probably right now, Boston. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Favorite way to cook chicken? Uh, favorite way to cook chicken thighs, start them in a pan, skin side down, then put them in a really hot oven at 450 degrees, then flip them and you've got just like beautiful roasted chicken thighs, crispy skin, natural jus. Sounds perfect. I love that. Yeah, that's I'm like, I might actually make that for dinner now. There you go. Maybe I'll make that tonight, too. Uh, <laughs> uh, your favorite go to snack. Favorite go to snack would probably be this coconut yogurt that I just fell in love with, with granola, blueberries and a scoop of peanut butter in that. So then I mix peanut butter into the coconut yogurt. Ooh, that's... I'm from L.A. Don't judge me. <laughs> no, LA. that sounds it sounds delicious. <laughs> sounds delicious and healthy and, and full of protein. So I'm yeah. on board. Uh, your least favorite food of all time foie gras don't really? even try don't even, don't even talk to me about it no uh, liver i don't like any organ meats liver kidneys leave them leave them back leave them somewhere else give them give them to someone else all right good to know yeah. uh yeah you're... people are always just like foie gras so great i'm like liar, you're liar. <laughs> you're like wrong you're wrong <laughs> best advice or tip you give to anyone who is just learning how to cook cook all the time. There is no shortcut. People want to take a magic pill where they become not a great cook to a great cook. There is no such thing. You have to cook every day. All right. I think that's a very good advice. And last question. Uh, this is not rapid fire. This is just the last question okay. that we ask everybody on Food Network Obsessed before we say goodbye. Uh, so your perfect food day, what is on the menu? So you've got breakfast, lunch, dinner, dessert, and there are absolutely no rules. So you can time travel, spend however much money Ooh. you want. Somebody can cook for you. Uh, you can cook it, wh whatever you want. Whatever is going to make your perfect food day, that is what we want to hear. Okay, so my perfect food day would start probably in, I would say Italy. Mm. And I would be like espresso, like a multitude of like cookies and breakfast pastries. You know what I mean? They have, it's like they have like bumbly with like um, beautiful like hazelnut filling mm. kind mm -hmm. of a thing. Like start there. Then I would actually go into breakfast. And I feel like my breakfast. Then <laughs> That's just your breakfast appetizer. Well, that would be my breakfast. I would start there. And then I would maybe take a trip to England just for the scones mm -hmm. and for like some clotted cream. Like okay. I would still continue. I 
would want to do like an entire trip of just breakfast pastries. Oh. So I would like start in Italy. Then I would go to England and get scones with clotted cream. Then I would go to France and just do like the most perfect croissant you've ever had in your entire life. And then once I did all that carb loading, (laughs) for me... It would be this incredible restaurant in Rome called Roschiolo, which is a small 15-seat restaurant that has, like, the most incredible antipasti and pasta. And I would eat that for lunch. I would eat that for lunch all day long. I'm I'm now realizing that my entire day would just be full of carbohydrates. I mean, I think that's fine. (laughs) Yeah. And it would just be, like, every pasta I could possibly eat from this specific restaurant in Rome. And then for dinner, it would be, honestly, the first chef I ever worked for, Wolfgang Puck Steakhouse. Mm. Like, I would need a full, I would need to close the day on a full steakhouse meal. So I'm talking about wedge salad, shrimp cocktail, filet mignon. Don't judge me. I'm a filet mignon steakhouse girl. (laughs) Cream spinach with a sunny side up egg, onion rings, bernays, and a poivre, because I kind of like to mix them together. All right. I support that. And then for dessert... Ooh, I don't even know where I would go for dessert. I would probably say dessert's harder. Um... Well, especially since you're a savory person. I am a savory person. I mean, I like desserts, but I'm not. um, Honestly, you know what I would do for dessert? And I know this sounds crazy after all that sort of like decadence and time travel or not time travel, but like, you know, just very expensive private jets (laughs) is a Carvel. Like what I loved when I was a kid was that Carvel vanilla cone that they would dip in the chocolate. It Uh, would like harden right there. I forgot what they're called. I don't. But that. Yeah, I don't. That's how I would. That would, that's all I would need after all of that. That's all I would need would be the vanilla Carvel soft serve that got dipped in that hot fudge that hardened uh, ice cream cone. That sounds perfect. That was always our our go-to, you know, treat as kids. Ours was at Dairy Queen, but, um, but yeah, Yeah. the the, the dipped cone, like the little dipped baby cone was like the perfect baby cone. Yeah. No, I love that. I think, I mean, that sounds like a, a, a fantastic food day and this has been a fantastic conversation. So, uh, thank you so much again for taking the time. It was lovely chatting with you. Absolutely. You too, Jamie. So nice to catch up with Antonia and finally find out about that Bachelor crossover. My curiosity has been quenched. You can catch Antonia on the latest season of Tournament of Champions streaming now on Discovery+. Plus. As always, thanks so much for listening and make sure to follow us wherever you listen to your podcast so you don't miss a single thing. And of course, if you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to rate and review. We do love it when you do that. That's it for now. We'll catch you foodies next Friday. 